Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this special Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, can you believe it? We are approaching two full years of adjusting and living with the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's been a lot. The Well, of course, the intersection of public health and politics. Campaign efforts to get folks tested, then get vaccinated, now get boosted. And of course, to implement Mass mandates or not, I'll be joined by a roundtable of healthcare officials to discuss what's working in the fight against the coronavirus and the challenges that's still ahead. It's a special edition of Closer Look, but first this. Let's talk about what's happening at the Gold Dome. Legislation to give parents more access to information about their kids' education is moving through the state capitol. Sam Greenglass has more on the so-called Parents' Bill of Rights, which passed the state Senate Tuesday. This legislation guarantees parents the right to review grades, attendance records, and other information within three days of a request. Principals would have 30 days if that information is not immediately accessible. The bill also says instructional materials have to be available for parents to review during the first two weeks of every nine-week grading period. Here's the bill's sponsor, Republican Senator Clint Dixon. As a parent of three children in public schools, it's time to reaffirm the rights of parents to direct the education and upbringing of their own children and have the support of local school districts in doing so. Democrats say parents already have avenues to provide input on curriculum and that this push would place unnecessary burdens on teachers and principals. Governor Kemp has pledged to sign a parents' bill of rights along with several other education bills. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Also under the Gold Dome, the Georgia Senate has approved another referendum on cityhood in Cobb County, this one for residents of Vinings. The Senate voted along mostly party lines Tuesday to add the referendum to the May ballot. It's the third such referendum to pass both chambers of the, both chambers of the Georgia House, following those for the cities of Lost Mountain and East Cobb. Governor Brian Kemp will have the choice to sign the bill if the Georgia House agrees to the Senate's version. By the way, Vinings would be the smallest of the proposed new cities in Cobb County with about 7,000 residents. And finally, honoring the life and legacy of Ahmaud Arbery is taking place in Georgia today, marking two years since his murder in Brunswick. Yesterday, a jury convicted the three white men already serving life in prison for Arbery's murder on federal hate crimes. Inside Atlanta's National Center for Civil and Human Rights today, a ceremony took place. Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, announced the foundation that also bears her her son's name will provide resources for black male youth. We believe in helping to create opportunities for young black men to further their education, to start a business, to simply build a life, something Ahmad did not have a chance to do. I'm very excited 
to announce that the Mont Aubrey Foundation will provide higher education scholarship opportunities to the seniors of Brunswick High School, which is the high school where Ahmad graduated from in the year 2012. Also during the ceremony, as State Representative Sandra Scott presented the Arbery family with a resolution, Wanda Cooper-Jones became emotional. And whereas February the 23rd will forever, will forever be known annually in the state of Georgia as the Ahmad Aubrey Day, now therefore be resolved by the House of Representatives that the members of this body join in memorializing Ms. Ahmad Marquez Aubrey. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Can you believe it? Nearly two years ago, February 26, 2020, top officials at Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, now they held a call with reporters to discuss this latest thing called COVID-19. Now, there were only a handful of known cases in the U.S. None had been confirmed in Georgia, and the World Health Organization hadn't even declared the outbreak a pandemic. Then a CDC top official, Dr. Nancy Messonnier, warned Americans to be prepared to have their lives turned upside down. Ultimately, we expect we will see community spread in this country. It's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather more a question of exactly when this will happen and how many people in this country will have severe illness. I understand this whole situation may seem overwhelming and that Disruption to everyday life may be severe, but these are things that people need to start thinking about now. I had a conversation with my family over breakfast this morning, and I told my children that while I didn't think that they were at risk right now, we as a family need to be preparing for significant disruption of our lives. Since that time, more than 930,000 Americans and an estimated 35,000 Georgians have died from COVID-19, figures that many public health experts say are likely undercounts. The healthcare system and the workforce we know that keeps it afloat have been battered by wave after wave after wave of infected patients. Vaccines and a number of treatments have been rapidly developed and fought over. Public health interventions like mass mandates have been implemented, pulled back and implemented again. And folks have been arguing at dinner tables and on social media. And after a recent surge fueled by the highly transmissible Omicron variant, cases and hospitalizations are falling again. So now, where are we and where are we going? Well, we've convened a panel of experts from across the state of Georgia. Some have been on this program before and some that we really respect. And that's why they're here. And just for a note of disclosure, a lot of them have been on before and some are new. So Dr. Andrew Kim is a physician at Ethne Health, a small clinic in Clarkston, Georgia. Dr. Jane Morgan is the head of the COVID-19 Task Force at Piedmont Healthcare here in Metro Atlanta. Dr. John Delzell is vice president for medical education at North Georgia Health System, which serves the northeast portion of the state. And finally, Dr. Jean Sumner. She's dean of the Mercer School of Medicine. Most of her career as a physician has been dedicated to serving communities in rural Georgia. Thank you all for taking the time and joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. All right. 
Let's start with, I know, no, Dr. Dr. Morgan and Dr. Sumner will be used to this, but let's start with the present moment. Uh, how do you assess where we are right now in the pandemic? And uh, Dr. Morgan, I'll start with you. Thanks for uh, having me today. You know, one of the things we have to think about in the in the present case of the pandemic is we just came off of the, the largest surge that we've had. We had the most infections. It was the most transmissible, the most contagious variant, and the sheer volume challenged our hospital systems, bringing them to critical levels. So we have to think about that when we think about this particular variant, the BA. Uh, one variant of Omicron, because the narrative that it was not that severe is a narrative that is uh, that I challenge. One of the reasons that I challenge that is that minority communities specifically um, often have multiple comorbidities that actually made this variant uh, very risky and put them at risk of severe disease. We also see uh, that this variant challenged our medical therapeutics. Uh, we needed that third shot. Uh, to be up to date, Moderna or Pfizer, the second shot for Johnson & Johnson in order to get that protection up at 75%. Mm -hmm. We saw that two of our monoclonal antibody therapies became ineffective. And now we're looking at this BA2, which looks as if our third availability for monoclonal antibody therapies, that citrovimab, also may be ineffective against this particular variant should it take hold, which means really we would be left with perhaps something that has yet to be authorized by the FDA. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we are in this variant in this fifth surge. And even though the numbers have come down greatly, they've come down from an incredibly high level. And so we still are at a very intense period of this uh, pandemic. And we should make certain that we utilize all mitigating uh, efforts, including masking, washing our hands, having some situational awareness of where you are and determining when it's appropriate to wear a mask or not. Dr. Kim, what about you, where we are now? Um, still intense, as uh, Dr. Morgan stated? Yeah, so I have the advantage of, of working both in a clinic, a community clinic, and also at Emory, uh, one of the Emory hospitals as a hospitalist. And um, I, really, I just I, I daily look at the Department of Public Health, their daily report, just to see what those numbers are. And then I also look at the census at the hospital and then just the amount of testing we do in clinic and how often patients are positive. And all of those numbers have dramatically dropped. And it's been very reassuring for our clinic. I would say the most important thing for me when I look at these things is how it affects our clinic staff. They're our family. And um, early on during the Omicron surge, we had many absences and many people that got out sick and many family members of our um, essentially minority and refugee staff that mm -hmm. really struggled with the disease. And a lot of them have recovered and they're doing better. And there've been very few absences um, in the last week, which has just been exceptional. And I think it's just a great sign that things are headed in the right direction. All right. Dr. Sumner, what about you? How would you assess where we are right now in the pandemic? Well, clearly, I agree that we're, we're coming off a very significant um, peak. But what COVID has done in our area and across the rural areas of the state is shine a very bright light on the health disparities and access issues that, are, that have been longstanding. Mm -hmm. And the, the fact that we can no longer accept the rule that if you live in a rural area or underserved population, you do not have access to care. Um, much of the death related to COVID was because of the chronic disease burden that had been left untreated. 
and hospitals are desperately needed and great institutions, but we need quality primary care in these rural areas Mm -hmm. that work with hospitals and to help the hospital not get overloaded and and to treat people early in the course of things Mm -hmm. and to advocate for patients. So COVID shined a very bright light on that, and and we have got to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dezel, what about you? Assess where we are now in this pandemic. Well, I I agree. I think one of the great things is that it's going down. I, I think one of our um, you know, concerns in the health system is that, you know, we, we don't, it hasn't gone away, you know, and, and I think our staff are really, are really, really exhausted, you know, mentally and emotionally and, and physically. And, you know, we had a nursing shortage before this all began. Um, and this has just really, you know, exacerbated that, that shortage. And, and we've had more patients and, and not enough staff uh, over the last two years to really, um, really address that. And I, I think, you know, that's the part that I think worries me the most. We, you know, we drop down, but we never get down to, to zero. Mm. Dr. Delzell, let me stay with you for a moment, because I want to go ahead and jump into this because it, it has, it was an issue. And I mentioned it in the intro coming into this segment, and that is the intersection of politics and public health. And through your lens, this is where I'm going to ask you all to, to, you know, this is all, all, all of course, through your lens, have we gotten past the politics of this virus and the focus on public health really now host a holistic approach and everybody's on the same page or are there still some issues that you see as relates to politics and all of this? And Dr. Dizelle, I'll let you start. Well, I think at, at least in our area, I think, you know, we've had a great partnership with the health district. We have a great partnership with the legislature and, and being able to, to get resources to help us to, you know, take care of our communities. I think, you know, on, on the ground, there's lots of people that have different opinions. And, and you know, what we've tried to do in, in our health system is really just get education out there. I mean, there's there's a ton of information that we can give to people. We've focused a lot on on community education in our in our rural population up in Northeast Georgia, but also the minority population. We have a, a large Hispanic population in this area that's not English speaking. And so, you know, I think, are there politics still? Yeah, I'm, there are. Um, we just try to, to give people the information that they need and help them to try to make the, the right choices. Dr. Sumner, what about you? I think the sad part about uh, whether it's political or media driven or whatever, it was the mixed message and you didn't know who to believe. And when you don't know who to believe, um, you do, you're frozen almost. You mm-hmm. don't know who to trust. And we've done a lot of work in rural underserved populations in this part of the state looking at reasons for vaccine hesitancy. And it was the lack of a trusted provider, the lack of a community doctor, the lack of you know, in one particular county that had at one point the highest percentage of death rate in the nation, the answer was, I just want to talk to somebody I know that tells me this vaccine is safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, The lack of trust in a broken system. And so, you know, the the mixed messaging coming through television and politics and whatever it was, but also the lack of long-term continuity of care and a doctor-patient-provider-patient relationship played a huge role. Mm. Dr. Kim, what do you think? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Sumner and 
that answer it perfectly describes what we've seen here in Clarkston. Um, the population here is over 50% refugee and immigrant background along with a large minority population. And one example is early on, um, when, when the vaccines were provided, we had to decide as a group whether or not to make vaccines mandatory. And we went and we surveyed our staff and there was a lot of, a lot of our own staff that really were hesitant and unwilling to get the vaccine at the moment. And there was just a lot of messaging in the community and people didn't know where to turn. And we decided against the mandate and largely because we didn't want to break the trust and credibility with our own staff by forcing a mandate that they didn't of something they didn't want at the moment. And we slowly just spoke and answered questions. And over time, all of our staff has been vaccinated or the vast majority has been vaccinated. And it's been the same thing with our community. We've um, always offered vaccines. Um, we've always offered community education. And we've, you know, we're trying as best as we can not to force it, but really being available to answer the questions that people have. And especially in our population that we serve, it's been really helpful, I believe. Dr. Morgan, politics and all of this. It's hard to ignore the deleterious impact of politics that certainly had on this pandemic as we near uh, 1 million uh, deaths in this country. Um, certainly in the state of Georgia, when we look at a comparison of uh, rural counties to the city of Atlanta, we see the death rate has been more than twice what it was in urban areas. And that's been consistent throughout this pandemic, throughout each of these surges. When we look at the vaccination rate, the low vaccination rate um, in the state of Georgia, and really, you know, at the nation, we still never even reached 65%. Mm -hmm. The dearth of people who actually move forward to get the so-called boosters or, or become up to date on their vaccines is less than 30%. So I think we can't ignore the negative impact that politics have played and the, um, the challenges that the CDC has had in in its messaging as well. It certainly has had communication challenges as well. And so, you know, at the end of this pandemic, um, there will be many lessons learned. Um, and I think one of those will be that we will have to try to uh, uh, understand and uh, move to the other side of is how can we ensure that science has a clear uh, voice and resonates when we are in scientific crises and that we're not able to be overshadowed by uh, political uh, leanings or or disinformation campaigns or some people, you know, some people just like chaos for the sake of chaos. Some people just enjoy the chaos. Mm -hmm. And how can we make certain that the scientific voices resonate? And I think what we've learned is that science doesn't really have a platform. Many other people have platforms, but science doesn't have a platform. And so absolutely, uh, politics, unfortunately, has driven behavior and and has driven, I think we can say, uh, the 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 uh, rates of uh, of death um, and morbidity in this country and in the state of Georgia. I saw a a headline today, and it's and it said, I'm going to quote here it's from the AP: the vaccination drive against COVID-19 in the U.S. is grinding to a halt, and lagging demand, especially stark in conservative corners of the country, where many people weren't interested in the shots. In the first place, uh, that is very interesting. But Dr. Uh, Sumner, I want to go with you with this because we know, as, as Dr. Morgan said, about 55 percent of Georgians are fully vaccinated nationwide. We're not at 65 percent, but we're at 64 percent. So, Dr. Sumner, here's my question for you. At this point, do you is should the focus if folks haven't gotten their vac the vaccination now, do you still try to get them 
to come in and get the shot? What more can be done? You mentioned the rural community. Or at this point, do we try to move toward another phase of dealing with this pandemic? Absolutely. We try to get people to take a vaccine. We try to, uh, you know, they have to know you care about them and, and, and that you really are giving them solid advice, not because of whoever said it. And, and I agree with Dr. Morgan. Science, the platform of science is the healthcare system, and we need to get our act together and speak with one voice in many ways. And we have not done that. Uh, if you look at the communities that had the highest percentage of deaths in our state, they're, they're all rural. Mm-hmm. This is percentage of death. Um, they're all communities of color, largely, and they have no primary care. And, you know, when you, it, it's easy to be judgmental of those individuals, but you don't have a pharmacy on the corner. You don't have a doctor in the community. You don't even know a nurse in your community. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have diabetes and you have to go 50 miles to see somebody and you end up in emergent, emergency rooms, which is the only alternative sometimes. And that's not the way to prevent disease. You need long-term relationships. You need care in your community. You need trust. You need to build relationships. And you absolutely... I believe that that anyone with a long-term relationship with their family medicine doctor or their internist or pediatrician, if that doctor or nurse practitioner or PA talks with that individual and explains it, most of those patients will be compliant. Well, let me ask you um, this. And I didn't mean to interrupt you. Was that what you just said? Was this missed early on? Should that have been the focus of more partnerships and in, in local and getting folks who are in the communities to be the advocates and the ambassadors for this, as opposed to, it seemed like it came maybe later, uh, as opposed to, you know, just having this blanket message, get tested, get vaccinated. And as should that have been the message early on, or was it too late in getting to these communities and these areas about the importance of getting, once the vaccine was available, getting vaccinated? You know, I don't want to be critical because this was a brand new thing for everybody. We, we were, you know, we were adapting daily. Everything was changing rapidly. We were responding to something that we could, you know, we, it was the first time there was a lot of new information. I got that. But yes, if you, if you go into these communities, they are resilient, they're tough, they may have a lot of um, social and economic issues, but they will come together and be a strong force. Um, to change their community, and we have found that. You build trust with those communities, and and they can help themselves. They're not asking for a handout. They're just asking for some assistance to get where they need to go and and to protect their families. Everybody loves their family or loves their children or loves their community in some way, and they want to to do the best for their, their community. Um, but you can't have people, I mean, television people don't really impact a rural community. Mm-hmm. We don't even get newspapers anymore. Um, so of course, social media plays a role, but 50% of social media is, is junk. And so what part of that do you understand? I mean, it's really hard to sort out if you're not from a medical background, what's true. Mm-hmm. And I have educated, former educated patients, truly people who should know better who believe some of the myths that they saw on, on, on social media. Hmm. Um, so. uh, Dr. Dazelle, you're, you're shaking your head in agreement in your part. Well, I, w- 
Go ahead. I was thinking about our, you know, we've, we've got like 15 counties that are our service area, um, you know, and uh, a couple of those are kind of closer down to Metro Atlanta, but most are, are farther north and, and they're pretty, pretty rural up in the mountains. And, and, you know, some of those places don't, you know, there's no hospital in that county. Um, they, they don't have a lot of physicians, you know, in the Southern part of the state down where Dr. Sumner is, it's, it's even worse. There's, there's many counties that don't have, um, that don't have a lot of healthcare services. So it's really hard for um, people to, to get information um, that that's appropriate. So often they do, they use what sources they have. And, mm -hmm. and, and if that information is wrong, um, and, and sometimes purposely wrong, it really, it's really hard for the, the people to know what to do. And I, I had a lot of, a lot of patients that we saw up here that, that were, um, just really confused and, and they, you know, they, they hardened their position on what, what they were going to do with their, you know, whether it was vaccine or, or, uh, masking or whatever, mm -hmm. but they didn't really have a lot of good information. And, and so they came to a decision before they really had the right information. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a break and continue in just a moment. Two full years adjusting and living with the coronavirus. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Seems like a long time ago, but then maybe not. And we've had so many conversations on this program regarding COVID-19. And we know the pandemic took a major toll on healthcare workers, including doctors in training. Dr. Anwar Osborne teaches ER doctors at the Emory School of Medicine. He told me last September about the bonds he's built with other healthcare workers on the front lines during the pandemic. Amongst myself and the residents and the other faculty, we get to see like all of the stuff that's going on, right? Mm -hmm. And you step outside of this world and, um, you know, you go on your social media stuff or you talk to your family and they're like, oh, COVID's not that bad. Like, it's bad. Like, I was looking at it the whole time, you know, like I pronounce people, you know, the residents are uh, uh, struggling to make it through. So um, there is a sort of shared experience um, that I've uh, tapped into also. We can't say thank you enough to everyone in the healthcare industry who has been working so tirelessly during this whole pandemic. And of course, now we're going to continue our conversation with a panel of health experts to discuss the state of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Kim. He's a physician at Ethne Health, a small clinic in Clarkston, Georgia. Also, Dr. Jane Morgan, head of the COVID-19 task force at Piedmont Healthcare here in Metro Atlanta. Also, Dr. John Delzell, Vice President for Medical Education at North Georgia Health System. And finally, Dr. Gene Sumner, Dean of the Mercer School of Medicine. And again, thank you all for taking the time. Um, let's take a moment to look back at where we've been. We've just talked about that. And I just want each of you to 
for through your own personal lens, talk about what the biggest challenge you felt that you faced during the pandemic. And I'll start with you, Dr. Morgan. Uh, thank you, Rose. I think, you know, as I was listening to um, my colleagues, certainly the, the biggest challenge has really been the um, fight against disinformation. And once again, science came late to the table. We didn't really begin to address disinformation until the Delta surge. That was the fourth surge. We were really, really too late. If science lacks a platform, many other people without scientific backgrounds, without scientific degrees, without scientific experience, had huge platforms and were able to push agendas. It wasn't until Delta, until we really started to get our act together and we began to speak out and specifically address this disinformation. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things during this pandemic, um, and we certainly, um, I don't want to pile on because we've done a lot of things right mm -hmm. and we've done them by the seat of our pants and the medical community has responded. We've absolutely done a lot of things right and we have saved a lot of lives. Uh, the development of this vaccine, of these vaccines, actually was um, fantastic. We look at the development of these vaccines and how we were able to stack these phases and move these vaccines out under emergency use authorization. But certainly the rollout of the vaccines um, was fumbled. There was no education, no communication ahead of them. And we were talking about a vaccine that was on a new platform that most people had never even heard of, messenger RNA. And to be truthful, even in the medical uh, community, some, you know, without being, being many years away from medical school, people may not know the difference between messenger RNA and DNA. Doctors don't necessarily deal with that every day if you're not in research. And so the entire rollout of the vaccines was just fumbled. There was not, um, a, there was a fundamental misunderstanding of what it was going to take to move uh, the entire community of the United States of America and society forward towards acceptance of these vaccines. And when, when we come out of the gate incorrectly, it's sort of hard to get the horses back into the barn. And that's what we've been doing this entire pandemic, getting the horses back into the barn because they bolted before we actually had any preparation in place. Mm. Dr. Sumner, what about you? Biggest challenge through your lens? Um, trying to uh, work with rural communities who were in desperate need and trying to provide the care and the um, the communication in their language and the language that mattered to them um, was a, a tremendous challenge. We um, mobilizing our students, um, you know, our students went out with the public health service and gave vaccine and helping them to understand um, to be non-judgmental and to be supportive of individuals with questions and take all the time it needed. Of course, running a school, training medical students who um, were scared, you know, and uh, but doctors don't run away from illness. And we had to figure a way forward where our students were safe, but also uh, could take care of those in most need mm -hmm. and run in a university. Um, and so, you know, making sure that we did everything we could to protect students while serving the community was a challenge for me personally, but uh, probably, you know, helping young physicians understand that uh, this is a life of service and we're going to be out there making a difference in these lives. And I, and I'll commend our students and faculty who never, never mm. stopped. Yeah, so. I think we all can agree with that. Dr. Kim, biggest challenge for you personally. 
I think my biggest personal challenge is dealing with the uncertainty and the unknown of COVID. Um, even after two years, I feel like there's still so much we don't know about this virus. There's so much in our inability to predict what will happen with the virus, when the next variant will take hold, if it'll take hold, uh, when the next big wave will be that's, you know, will require us to divert our resources again. Um, not having solid answers to these questions that oftentimes we do have answers to in the public health sense is, has been really difficult. As a clinic, we've had to be extremely flexible. Um, and I think throughout this process, um, I've really learned to be more humble. Um, a lot of the assumptions we had, I personally had about COVID early on have been wrong. And a lot of my predictions have been completely wrong. And a lot of the things I've told patients have been wrong as well. In all honesty, mm -hmm. when I look back, about the efficacy of certain treatments and vaccines, et cetera, and what it would be. And, and I think through all of that, I've realized um, I need to be more humble as a physician and as a provider and as an advocate for the community to really step back and say, we think this, we're not, I can't stay with 100% confidence because I think, you know, when we start being very confident of things that we probably shouldn't be <laughs> so confident of, we do breed mistrust. and. Um, us and providers in the medical system. And um, I hope moving forward, we can be more humble with kind of how we present information and just acknowledge that there's a lot that's unknown and uncertain. You know, Dr. Kim, I got to tell you, to my knowledge, and I've done a lot of these, you are the first physician to acknowledge that and admit that. that it, thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Dizel, what do you think? Biggest challenge? I, I, uh, well, at least for me, I think my the biggest challenge has been just being afraid of, of, failing our community. You know, I mean, we're, we, ba we basically take care of, you know, the, everybody in this area, you know, in the Northeast segment of the state. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we've done a lot of a really amazing things, our, our staff and all of our, our, you know, being able to, to create new ICU beds and, and create new, you know, places to put patients and expand and, our ER and just, you know, everything that we've done. But, you know, I think, you know, I, I was always afraid that, you know, what happens if we don't have enough? What if, what if we don't, you know, aren't able to take care of everybody? And, mm -hmm. you know, we knew that, that our community was counting on us to be able to do that. Wow. You know, you all have been part of a, a community, a system that obviously the entire world relies on during this pandemic. And when we opened the conversation, I asked you all just to kind of reflect on where we are now. And now I kind of want to move into sort of the, the future in a sense. And so I'll stay with you, Dr. Um, Delzell. When we look at, you know, when are we going to get to, I guess, the other side? I'll just ask this question first. Have we gotten to the other side through your lens? Are we there? How close are we? Or what should the other side look like, too? You can answer any one of those questions. You know, I read this interesting thing about the the um, pandemic back in the first part of the 1900s. You know, it um, we always were taught, I think, in med school that it sort of came and went. And, you know, we always talk about it being 1917, 1918. But rea the reality was it took a long time for it to really kind of go away. And I think now we're, we're starting to see that in, in real life. It's it's you know, it's transitioning from, you know, where we were a year ago, where we were scared and didn't really know, you know, exactly what to do to, to really sort of starting to live with it. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I was, I, we have a, a group of residents that are going to graduate this, um, this summer, who really don't know anything but COVID. They've, they've spent their whole 
you know, time and training. It came, it came in, in February after they started it, the July before that. And so they've mm-hmm. spent their whole training as a physician in COVID. Um, and so I, you know, I think we're, we're at that point where we're really starting to figure out like, you know, how do we continue to live um, in this time where we still are going to have COVID for a while? Dr. Sumner, your thoughts, what should the other side look like and how close are we to it? Oh, gosh, Rose, I hope we're close to the other side, but I don't know that. Mm -hmm. I I think the other side ought to be a Georgia where every citizen has a trusted provider that they can go to for health care and that poor, rich, educated, uneducated, and particularly rural, in our case, there's areas of rural Georgia that are in desperate need. And, um, you know, my hope is that we have a healthy Georgia, that we particularly have a, a healthy rural Georgia because there's so many resources in urban areas. And I know there are more people, but drive to Southwest Georgia and, um, you know, it's, and, and other places, North Georgia, there are places all over this state where there are underserved populations. And, and we somehow managed to be critical of them. Um, I can't understand that. I, I think to Dr. Kim's point, uh, we as a society, as providers in healthcare have got to be humble and we've got to, commit ourselves to changing that conversation. They don't need everything, but they need basic care in their communities and they need access to emergency stabilization with somebody that's there, that's part of their community, that goes to the grocery store and their church or synagogue or whatever Mm -hmm. with them and helps them be a healthier community and and focus on prevention. We have got to focus on prevention because if we can get preventative care, if you look at health disparities and look at the, the years of premature death in rural communities, it's shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that in it by itself, we can get those communities healthier. Then we don't need as many ICU beds. We don't need uh, as many, um, we don't have as many deaths from COVID, even though COVID's a horrible thing. And I hope it goes away. I don't think it's going to go away. And I don't. I think if it does, we're going to have another something coming down the road. So we've got to go back and rebuild our house and, and put a foundation that is fair and equitable to everybody. Dr. Morgan, the other side of this, what it could look like or should look like. Yeah, I agree with all of uh, my colleagues. And I think when we um, look at the other side, what we're going to be faced with is the fallout of COVID. Um, Not just these long haulers, but what are some of the other long-term effects that have been um, unanticipated? So my background is cardiology. I I do something on social media called the Stairwell Chronicles, where I actually answer COVID vaccine questions. And I'll be doing a Stairwell Chronicles live on Monday to talk about the cardiovascular effects of COVID and what they look like and whether or not this virus was really more of an endothelial disease and not a respiratory meaning impacting the linings of your of your arteries and of your vessels um and what are we seeing especially with omicron in patients even with mild disease having subsequent strokes having subsequent heart attacks or arrhythmias um we are looking at that we have this large study uh, obviously that's come out of the the military 
um, which has been very provocative to look at these cardiovascular long-term effects of these soldiers who, who got COVID early and who by and large were very, very healthy. They're young and they're in the military. Hmm. Most of them are white, most of them are male. So we'll have to look at it through that lens. But it gives us good information. It's something that I'll be discussing on Monday. I think cardiology is not the only thing. We're going to look at other long-term effects, mental health, obesity, diabetes, um, delayed medical care. All of these things we're going to be dealing with the fallout of COVID on the other side, including the stopping of clinical trials or the decrease in clinical trials as, as, as principal investigators were pulled and moved to other COVID germane tasks in these emergencies that we were managing in these crises. And who gets access to these clinical trials as research revs back up. And so I think we are going to have a tail end that's going to be quite long, our children, and what this is going to look like. And we're going to have to do a lot of damage repair and assessments and lessons learned and take a transparent and honest look at, at, at what our infrastructure is and hopefully not get back to normal. But we will have to uh, not get back to that normal. That normal wasn't working. Mm. And so we will, I think, on long-term, be dealing with long-term impacts of COVID in, um, in many ways. Dr. Kim, the other side of this. Yeah, as I said earlier, and one lesson is that I think we don't know the future, but I hope in 20 years when someone coughs next to me, my heart doesn't my heart doesn't skip a beat. Mm. But I, I don't know. And honestly, as a normally optimistic person, I'm very pessimistic. Um, it's very hard to predict when COVID will become endemic, as people have talked about. Um, I do think, you know, the way we, especially physicians, healthcare providers live our lives with very little margin is not going to be sustainable. We all, you know, to deal with COVID, we have to be more flexible as a society and we need to make more margin for the healthcare system and healthcare providers. And that's something I think moving forward, we really do need to focus on. As we begin to wrap up, I do want to focus on leadership in the future, but I also want you all to take a listen. This is, of course, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, head of Atlanta Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Here she is last week talking about what comes next in the pandemic. I know that everyone is anxious to move beyond this pandemic and some of the ways we have had to change the way we live over the last two years. We all share the same goal to get to a point where COVID-19 is no longer disrupting our daily lives, a time when it won't be a constant crisis, rather something we can prevent, protect against, and treat. Moving from this pandemic will be a process led by science and epidemiologic trends, and one that relies on the powerful tools we already have, including vaccines, boosters, testing, and treatment. There's a two-letter word that she used that you have all used in all of this, and that is we, the we involved. And so as we begin to wrap up, and I'll start with you, Dr. Delzell, when we talk about this we and in the future and how we're still adjusting to living with this pandemic, is there someone, a group, an entity that's not being talked about enough in terms of the we? And if so, what is that group? Well, I, I would say um, the we is um, our communities. You know, I think at the at the ground level, every everything that happens that's going to be positive, you know, all the stuff that we've talked about, um, it has to involve community efforts uh, to improve the way we 
handle our health. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, I mean, there's so many different things around that, whether it's, you know, what we do in the schools, whether it's, you know, how people are able to walk around in their communities, whether it's access to food and shelter. I mean, there's just so many things that are around, you know, our communities. And, and if, if we don't have those communities in good shape, I think it's really, it's going to be, continue to be really hard to, to develop health within our, within our areas. And you can define our community as big as the state or down at Mm -hmm. our our local level in our neighborhoods and our in our cities. So um, I think that's the we that I think about. Dr. Sumner, the we that's being left out through your lens. Um, I agree with what that Del Sell said, but and it's basically the same. It has to be the patient. It has to be the patient and who cares for them. And we have to focus on patient centered care. And instead of building systems, um, we got to think about how we help those individual patients. And, it, and those patients are, are so important and where they are and go to them where they are in a non-judgmental, caring way and build a system that works because everyone on this call can access care. Uh, but there are so many in our state that have nobody to call mm-hmm. and we've got to look at patient care um, and, and, and look at continuity and relationships in care because that's what really improves uh, overall health status. Dr. Morgan, who's being left out of the we? And so I think, you know, as we uh, think about this, when we look at the social determinants of health and we focus on our communities, we also have to think about what the moral determinants of health are as well. Now, I recently published a paper actually looking at different health insurance coverage by race with regard to the COVID pandemic. And as it turns out, when health insurance is equitable, outcomes were fairly equitable as well with regard to this COVID pandemic. Health insurance um, represents access. And so we have to be able to understand what that is. What is our moral obligation Mm -hmm. um, as a health community in addition to addressing these social determinants of health for all people in this country. It's my hope and fervent wish, and hopefully I work towards that and represent that, that at some point we could all come together as, as one uh, as one group, as one nation and move forward, um, continuing to have individual voices, but really understanding what is the best for society as a whole. Dr. Kim? Yeah, the, the we I think that's left out is we, including, people of all different persuasions and beliefs and politics and perspectives on vaccine. We have to look at each other as equals and as people that really, and we really need to listen and really believe that people are trying to make good judgments and not wanting to harm others and really presume the best of people rather than the worst. And I think that's just crucial as we move forward. And finally, the last question, which is also a statement, doesn't come from me. It comes from a listener who says, how do you get people to care about themselves and others? Because this is what it boils down to. And real quickly, we've got about three minutes. Dr. Kim, respond to that. Listening to one another. All right. Dr. Morgan. Uh, with COVID, that this is not a singular disease. It's a plural disease. So a singular decision affects many people. It doesn't affect just one. Dr. Delzell. Well, the great part about infectious diseases is you cannot think about it for just yourself. You got to think about 
everyone's interconnected. And uh, so I, I think thinking about others is, is really the way out of all this. Dr. Sumner. Uh, I'll agree with Dr. Kim. It's, it's listening and caring and giving individuals hope because they have given up hope for a better life, for a better system. And we can bring that to them if they, if we care about them and they know we care. So it, it really is, it's about listening and, and bringing hope and opportunity to these families for care. Mm. Dr. Jean Sumner, Dean of Mercer School of Medicine, most of her career as a physician has been dedicated to serving in rural Georgia. Also, I was joined today by Dr. John Delzell, Vice President for Medical Education at North Georgia Health System, which serves the northeast portion of the state. Dr. Jane Morgan, head of the COVID-19 Task Force at Piedmont Healthcare here in Metro Atlanta. Dr. Andrew Kim, physician at Ethne Health, a small clinic in Clarkston, Georgia. First of all, thank you all for continuing to do what you all and so many others in your space have been doing these last two years. And then also thank you for being a part of this conversation, a very important conversation. Thank you so thank much. You, thank you, Rose. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rose. And again, I want to thank all of you who joined us on this special edition of Closer Look. And a reminder that you can find all this information online at wabe.org, as well as links to bios and more information about our guests. Uh, listeners send emails wanting to know how they can contact you personally. We don't give that information out, but we'll definitely tell you about your healthcare systems and where you work. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead, also produced today's special. We also have our other producers, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. And a reminder, again, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And also remember to check out our Paycheck to Paycheck series, our survey. It's all online, wabe.org slash paycheck. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 